at the end of the day, if you think you can't do it because you don't have money, your mindset's probably the issue more so than the situation. So what can you do to change the way you look at the world and yourself to make it work? Welcome to the On Purpose Investor Podcast with your host, Eric and Tiffany Vogel. We spent several hard years building a rental property portfolio so we could have more time with our family and live our ideal life. Finding your path can be difficult, so we're here to help guide you along the way with lessons, tips, and tricks to design and implement your dream life through real estate investing. Now sit back, turn up the volume, and get ready for this episode of the On Purpose Investor. Hey, Pathfinders. Welcome back to the On Purpose Investor podcast. I'm your host, Eric, with the beautiful, lovely, amazing, pregnant Tiffany. How you like the intro? It's very subdued for your normal Eric. Well, I usually get into that whole getting weird on the Eric. But, you know, I'm trying to rein it in a little bit. I know, you know, we're we're unveiling some new branding here, trying to get into like a, you know, upper businessy look. And maybe I need to break up with the old habits. Oh, okay. <laughs> we'll see what happens. Welcome back, Pathfinders. And today we are kicking off episode number 26, talking about money. And this whole season, season three, we're talking about objections that you may have as, as a listener or people you may know getting into the business that just come to you with objections that they have why they can't get into real estate investing. So today we're diving into money. How is money an objection to not getting started? Yeah, a lot of people say, I just I don't have enough money to invest. And the thing is, you don't have to have money to get in the game. You can get started, and we'll talk through some strategies that you can take to immerse yourself in the business and learn and educate while you're earning money, and it doesn't cost a huge you know, $10,000 chunk of money up front to get in. And that's what a lot of people think. You know, they, they see people that buy rental properties, and what they see is the sticker value of right. that property. And then they think, oh, I have to put 20% down. Right. And that is not what you have to do. It's an option. It's a strategy, but we've never put 20% down no. on any property. No. That was because we studied up on how to be creative on the takedown. Right. But that's not to say we don't have at least 20% equity in the properties. Right. So there's a key difference there. But mm-hmm. The cash invested does not have to be 20% down or more. Right. Right. So, so we'll start out with how did we start yeah. with very little money? Because we... Now, when we say we didn't have a lot of cash, we literally mean that. We didn't have a lot of cash in the bank. We had some access to some retirement money. I was 27, 28 when we got started. You were 25, 26 when we got started. And that means we hadn't been contributing long to our retirement accounts. And when we got started, I was still a teacher, so I couldn't access that retirement account to begin with anyways. But I did have a tiny nest egg of money that when I joined the National Guard, I said, I'm just going to live my life as if this money wasn't there. And I'm going to put all of that into a thrift savings plan. And I kind of forgot that I was doing that. And when Tiffany and I started looking at real estate investing, she's like, you have a TSP, don't you? I was like, yeah, but I don't even know how to get into it. I hadn't logged in in over five, six, seven years and finally got logged into it and saw that we had, what, $25,000 in there? I don't recall how much 30. it was, but... Not quite, because after we after you left teaching, we moved that money over, and that's okay. how you got the larger amount. I think I, I had think, twenty thousand or something. I don't even there. think it was that high. I think it was like maybe ten. 
it was not a lot of money. And when you take a loan on your retirement accounts, you can only take half of that amount. So we were taking not a huge chunk of money out right. to help us fund our portion of the down payment or the the renovations. Mm-hmm. So we we took loans on our retirement accounts and then we would do burrs. So we'd buy a house, fix it up, do a refinance, and then we'd pay that loan back. And you then left had, out the key step of the burr. Rent. Well, of course. You gotta rent it out. Yes. So once it was stable, rented, we take that cash out. Mm-hmm. repay the loan sometimes we didn't we just held the cash for the next deal right because we realized very quickly there's a uh holding period oh my gosh yes so we couldn't touch like, the money after like, thanks repaying. for paying off your loan uh wait six months before right. you touch it again We're like we want it now yeah <laughs> we got another deal we need it now right. so we quickly decided we're just going to keep it pulled out yep and, <laughs> and yeah keep redeploying it within house we had friends that used a very similar strategy. They right. did not have any retirement accounts when they started, but they had paid off cars. Yep. So they would go get a car loan, basically. And I don't know if they went to Title Ponds. No, this is what... So our buddy told us, he said, yeah, we needed cash and we didn't have, you know, the ability to get into 401ks and stuff like that. So we'd have a paid off car note and we'd walk into the bank and we'd show them our title and then we'd show them the, the blue book value and say... Can you put a note on this? And then they would talk in house and, you know, write them a three, five, ten thousand dollar check, which is probably only like twenty to fifty percent equity of the value of that car. And so it very low risk for the bank because now they have a, you know, forty thousand dollar car for ten grand right. or whatnot. So it was just their approach and it was their way of getting access to money. And we've talked about it. You know, there were times when we started that we were really cutting it thin. And we needed an extra five grand here and there. And if we didn't have other financial friends, that's where we would have went. Yeah. We would have absolutely taken our car title. Right. Into, you know, our local credit union and say, we have this car note. You can come out. The car is in the parking lot. You can check it out. It's a nice car. It's fully insured. We'll list you as the additional insured or the primary insured. It's safe. Yes. We need five grand. Right. <laughs> we would have begged for money. And we we could have also done personal loans that yeah. are unsecured. You pay a higher rate, but there are ways to get cash if you need it. But mm-hmm. we'll talk about some strategies where you don't have to have it. That's just what we did. We also use 0% interest credit cards to fund some of the rehab. And then once we do that cash out refi, we'd pay that off and not pay 25% interest anymore. It's so strange because over the course of the past three and a half, four years that we've been doing this, we always use that credit card for those rehabs. And when we'd pay it off about three or four weeks later, we get an email, your credit line's increased. Right. Your credit line's increased. Your credit, And now these cards that started off as $10,000 are now like, like 60 or no, 70. They started out at $3,500. No. So we had just a few grand to play with. Right. But it was enough to keep us rolling. Those credit lines have just skyrocketed. Yeah. So, I mean, if that tells you anything, just, you know, pay off your card regularly and right. spend the money on it and, you know, they'll, they'll increase your yeah. credit line. Be careful, though. You got to be responsible. Yeah. So when we first started, we signed up for a year 0% interest promo. So we weren't paying interest over that first year. Mm-hmm. And then when that year ended, we went and got another card with a f- another year. If we had to carry a balance, we'd carry it on that 0% interest. We would make sure that our holding costs included that payment right so that we weren't underwater with a credit card right. during and we the knew it period. would be when we did our refi 
if it appraised, and some houses didn't appraise, so we had to roll it until the next house, mm-hmm. but and then use some of our reserve money to pay it back, which was not ideal, but you know, it doesn't always work out the way you planned. But we when we got that refi back and the appraisal back, plan was the money would go to pay off the debt we accrued. Right. To to renovate that house. Yeah. yeah. It's and, so fun thinking back to how we started and yeah. where my mind was with money. When we first started, like I couldn't fathom that we're writing a two thousand dollar check or a five thousand dollar check. Yeah. And now my mindset with money is, I can't believe we're only paying ten grand for this service, or I right. can't believe this check is only twenty grand. You know, your mind just changes. Yeah. In the sense of your relationship with money, as as you get more seasoned, and as you know, you add more zeros to the end of things. Right. It's all just another you zero. Know, working on a sixty thousand dollar house is a lot different. Than working on a four hundred thousand dollar house, right. it just changes your mindset, right? As you do it, yeah. So for us, the strategy that worked was really just finding good deals. We bought most of our houses on the MLS; that was just where the market was, and we had really good search criteria and had a system that worked for us. Yeah, you might have to find deals a different way, especially things have shifted over the last four years. So we would find great deals, get a hundred percent of the purchase financed. And then we would cover the rehab and the closing costs. Right. But I want to add that was still under 75% of the ARV that we were financing Mm -hmm. because we were finding deals at a discount. So we're not saying go take out 100% leverage. That's definitely not what you want to do. Yeah, don't do that. But if you can find a good deal and find a a private money lender or hard money lender that'll give you 75%, then you can buy it with no money down. Mm-hmm. And then we would upfront the rehab. Sometimes they'd cover part of the rehab or all of it. Right. It really just depended. It took time of building relationships with those people too. It wasn't yeah, just they're not just going to hand deal. you money. It's it's right. relationship building. So it, it definitely was built on the shoulders of communication, trust, friendship, and you know responsible right. behaviors. Right. So after you pay someone back three or four times, they they trust you. A and lot they more. have financial friends where they can say, yeah, they're the real deal. You can you can loan to them. They're going to pay you back, right? And and they they value the house that you're purchasing mm-hmm. and make sure that that's a good deal, right? So your reputation matters and the deal really matters, right? Right. So some strategies you can do that don't involve any cash outlay. Um, one is master leasing. So that's something we came across a couple of years ago. Now, just uh, for the record, we have not master leased, but we have master leased some of our homes out right to other so what investors. is master leasing so master leasing so i'm gonna do it like this tiffany you are a landlord and you're kind of tired of dealing with tenants yes and you've been doing this for five years my name is eric and i am just getting started and i want to learn everything there is to know about being a landlord and owning rental properties can i please rent your house so that I can rent it out to other people. So I'm going to sign a lease with you for a little under market value. And then I'm going to go rent it out at market value. The reason I'm renting it from you at under market value is that you don't have to deal with the tenants anymore. You right. only deal with me. Right. I deal with the tenants. Yep. And so I get the capture of the rent from where I'm renting it from you to end user, the tenant. So there might be an extra $150, $200 Usually there. it's a 10% spread that right. the, the master leaser gets. So you're still going to make money on this because you already have your spread figured right. out. 
your your cash flow is $200. Your cash flow is not changing. I'm capturing the growth on top of that by renting it from you. And then let's say the market grows over the next year, we can discuss upping my rent to you and my rent to the tenants. Right. So it's kind of arbitrage in a way, but it's an agreed to arbitrage and it's a way for me to get into the game. I'm learning how to landlord. I'm learning how to deal with tenants. I'm learning how to run a rental property like a business. You still get all of the perks of a rental property. You keep your depreciation. You keep cash flow. You're keeping that asset to grow in your portfolio. The appreciation. And what am I getting? I'm getting access to the skill sets for being a landlord. I'm getting the cash flow that's on top. And I am gaining your trust that maybe one day when you become really tired and really done with rental properties, you're probably going to sell that house to me. Right. Right. So there's a strategy in doing a master lease with an option to purchase the home. Mm -hmm. So that means in 15 years, you can buy the home from the that tired landlord right. for an agreed upon price. And there are... Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Or there's a, another way to do it as a right of first refusal, mm-hmm. which means if they decide to sell the house, you have the option to buy it first. Now, that's not always very free to get, right? In order to get a, a right of first refusal, you might offer that landlord and say, instead of 10%, let's do 8% and I get a right of first refusal. Right. So you're going to keep more cash flow, but I'm going to get that right of first refusal. Right. Right. There's so you, you give there's them something. A number of ways to approach it. But the or, overall yeah. introductory strategy is it's kind of like a property manager. Mm-hmm. But a lot of states require property managers to have a real estate agent license. Right. You're not required to have an agent's license because you're not managing the property. You're leasing it from that landlord. Yeah. And there's a couple different ways you can structure it um, for the the details of how to do this if you're really interested in it. I highly recommend David Tilney's hassle-free property property management course. Mm-hmm. That's where I learned it. It's great info, and it it gets you started. So for I think his course is five ninety nine. So drop a few hundred dollars, and you could learn the strategy that will make you several hundred dollars every month. Yeah, and and think about it. You know, if you go and drop six hundred dollars on this course, and you're able to find just one tired landlord, or maybe they're not tired, maybe they're they got something else going on and they can't deal with it anymore. They're not tired. They're just, you know, disassociated. And you reach out to them and you say, hey, let's do this. I'm going to master lease from you. And now you're getting $100 a month. Well, in six months, the pay, the course has paid for itself. Yeah. And now you are, you know, on the, what do you call it? In the black. Yeah. 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 And so. I know he is doing a course just a couple weeks after this comes out. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, I would go right now and look. They fill up pretty quick. So if you're interested in doing this, I would jump on it right now. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've heard that, that David's not going to be teaching like much longer. Like he might be just, you know, hanging it up. So this could be one of the last times to, to see him. But, you know, there might be a few more opportunities. But I wouldn't right. chance it. I wouldn't risk it. Go now and check out the show notes and click that link to see when. Uh, well, where is he teaching and when is he He's teaching? He's doing a and, Zoom class. And can I get there? Um, yeah. And it's coming up a few days from the release date of this. So oh, okay, good. Um, and they do fill up quick, so it might already be full at this point. But if that's not an option, there there are other programs out there that teach it. But I 
David's is the one I definitely recommend. So if you're interested in some of the other programs, reach out to us on social media or email, and we can hopefully point you in the right direction. And if you've read The Pathfinder's Journey, you know that we recommended David Tilney within the book as well. Right. You know, that's the... That's the course that Dan recommends to Charlie and Liza to go take so that they can figure it out. And there's a there's a great little story within the Pathfinder's Journey about their experience at David Tilney's course. So if you haven't read the Pathfinder's Journey, go check that out. And you can gain a little bit of introspection about what do you gain from courses like this? Right. Definitely. All right. So another strategy outside of master leasing is wholesaling. And wholesalers have gotten a bad reputation over the last few years, probably last decade is my guess. But do you want to explain what wholesaling is? So let's do this example again. Hi, Tiffany. You are a homeowner. Okay. And you are looking to sell, but it's not on the market yet. And somebody sent you a mailer or someone knocked on your door or someone cold called you and said, hey, I want to buy your house for cash right now. That's me calling you. Ring, ring. Hey, Tiffany, mm-hmm. I want to buy your house right now. And you say, "Um, well, I didn't know I wanted to sell, but you know what? It doesn't sound like a bad idea. I think I'll sell. And I say, okay, Tiff, I got a great deal for you. I'm going to pay you $100,000 for this house today. Can we get it under contract? And you say, Yes, I what? guess I'm not negotiating with you. You're so not negotiating. In this example, yes, I will take your, your price. I show up to your house or I send you an email with a DocuSign and boom, we're under contract for $100,000. Now me being so smart and intelligent and bright that Eric is, I know that this house is actually worth about $180,000 fixed up. But as is, it's worth about $130,000. So I take our $100,000 contract and I go find a friend. And I call him up, ring, ring. Hi, Dan. Do you want a $180,000 fixed up house for $130,000? It only needs about $10,000 in repairs. Do you want this house? I'll sell it to you for $130,000. He says, whoa, I've been looking for one. Let's do this deal. I send the contract on assignment to Dan. And I assign this contract to Dan. And he accepts the bid or accepts the contract for $130,000. When they go to the closing table, this is where... There's a couple different ways it can happen. I don't want to... I don't think it it gets confusing. It can. But basically, you get... You walk away with that $20,000 spread. 30. No, you're... Oh, was it 30? So I bought it from you for 100 okay. and I sold it to him for 130 Okay. So the difference between what you bought it from that home buyer mm-hmm. versus what you sold it to your friend for, mm-hmm. plus whatever advertising costs you have is Maybe your profit. Maybe I said 120 <laughs> I think you said, I don't know. Anyways, you I, I get have the pregnancy spread. brain. You so get the spread, right? Good. So you get the spread. Whether yeah. he bought the contract for 120 or 130 you're getting the spread from 100 to that. Right. At the closing table when right. the end buyer buys it. Yep. The, you have to be very good at negotiating mm-hmm. to do this, to be good at finding deals. And the reason wholesalers have gotten a bad reputation is they are getting houses under contract that need a ton of work. And there's just not enough room for that flipper or landlord to well, to make their money. I would say there's an array of things that have gone wrong for right. wholesalers. Number one, the biggest thing that has gone wrong is that wholesalers have gotten very greedy with their contracts. Our $100,000 contract, they would try to skinny it up as much as they can and say the house is worth one eighty, dollars needs $10,000 worth of work. 
I'm not going to leave you as a flipper any room. I'm going to sell you this contract for one seven. Well, I think a lot of it too is not being able to get it under contract with enough of a spread. Right. Exactly. So they're, the seller says, "Oh, I I really need one fifty. So yep. they they get it under contract at one fifty, but that leaves no room for closing costs and yep. everything else for that flipper or end buyer. What what you got to keep your mind set on in the whole aspect of real estate investing is that it's a people problem solving business. You got to solve problems. You got to solve problems for the seller. You got to solve problems for the end buyer. You got to solve people's problems. And if what you're doing is trying to just line your pockets and that is your first motivation, your first motivation is to make a bunch of money, you're not going to find a lot of success in the long run. Right. You might find one or two deals here and there for 40, 50 grand assignment each. And yeah, you made 150 grand. But, you know, to what end? You have ruined your reputation. You probably likely not get any more in the future. Right. And no one's going to trust you as a wholesaler anymore. Right. But if you can repeatedly find good deals for buyers and you can continually solve problems for sellers that are in a situation, then you will be a good wholesaler. We've met both ends. We have had wholesalers send us deals that, you know, I'll look at and say, how did you not get this under contract for, for less? Like, what are you doing? Right. Like, you obviously did not communicate with that seller what the realistic outcome is. Right. And you're not going to sell that house. And what happens to that seller is they're stuck. They can't sell this house right. to anyone else for the for the entire time that that thing's under contract. And we've and seen they might some, lose their house. They yeah. might be in a foreclosure and right. lose their house because a wholesaler made a promise and then doesn't. And they locked them up for 10 days in this, you know, in this contract or 30 days in this contract. Right. And they can't, you know, they can't sell it to someone else who really wants to buy it. For, right what they want or what they need to get out of pre-foreclosure. And then what happens is the wholesaler, he just eh, calls them up. Well, um, actually financing fell through, can't buy your house, click buy. And what is that in, what is that seller doing now? They're, they're moving out of that house into a hotel with a foreclosure on their record. Right. And we had it happen to a good friend of ours. Absolutely. And we, we warned him because we had kind of a feeling this is what was going to happen, but they had the had a contract sent over and were ready to move forward. He already purchased a new house and was ready to move out. And the wholesaler just said, I can't do it, and then disappeared. And now he's left trying to figure out how to get his house sold. Right. So if you're going to do it, do it the right way. I, Care I, about people. Yeah. And we highly recommend Vena Jones-Cox out of Ohio. She has yeah. a great pro- 